Good morning. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're still in 17 through 19. We're in Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. Matthew 16, 17 through 19. Jesus answered and said unto him, after Peter, of course, calls him the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. So this morning is uh, still our third sermon on Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. You might think I've miscounted, but I haven't. I just took a week-long intermission in the middle of the third sermon. And so far in this sermon, this is just a continuation of last week. We ran out of time. Uh, we've explained the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the ministry of binding and loosing. And as we've seen, both of these ministries have to do with the authority to delineate. That the church will be giving the authority to delineate. What's that mean? To describe or portray or set forth with accuracy or in detail the differences between two things. To draw lines or markers out, boundaries of something. And that's exactly what the keys and what binding and loosing are all about. The keys, just as they do today, they represent authority and ownership. The one who has the keys determines who should be allowed in and who must be kept out. It is to delineate between those who belong and those who don't belong, those who should be included and those who shouldn't. And in the same vein, we see binding and loosing. And those are rabbinical terms, meaning forbidding or permitting. If a person continued to do or to believe something that was forbidden, refusing to repent, then he would be removed or disciplined. And then if he repented from his evil ways, he would be forgiven and the ban would be lifted. This binding and loosing in the Aramaic language that Jesus used was a customary expression to denote the highest of authority that there was. So both terms have to do with authoritative delineation. Keys delineate between those who are in and out of the church... And binding and loosing delineates between what's right and wrong. What are, what are we supposed to do as Christians? These two concepts are unavoidable in any age and in any culture. And whoever it is that defines right and wrong for a people will see their influence and their authority increase. You cannot have a kingdom of people. You can't have a nation. You can't have anything without laws. And whoever is defining the laws, they will expand that authority. It's inevitable. They will form the social, the social mores. They will transform the families. And ultimately, the laws of the people will image that culture that's created from the ones who are defining right and wrong for the people and who are admitting entrance or keeping people out of positions of authority. It's inevitable. Every time, that always exists, always has, and always will. 
As we saw last week, the Pharisees had become the culture binders of Jesus' people. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, not Jesus' people, of the Jewish people at the time of Christ. That's what the Pharisees did through the synagogue. It was they who exercised the keys to determine who was allowed into the synagogue and who was kept out of the synagogue and by what basis that they were allowed in and kept out. And within the synagogue, they wrestled through the law of Moses to determine how to interpret it and what righteous behavior looked like for the pious Jew, where their behavior was bound and where that they were loose to do as they wished. From that, they developed the tradition of the elders which was the assumed standard of righteousness at the time of Christ. Everybody thought, well, this, this is what righteousness looks like. It was authoritative. They believed that once they formed the perfect, the, once they perfected the law of Moses and got it really right and established that as the culture, then that the Messiah would come and reign over them and abolish the Roman government of the world and that they would once again have their kingdom established. And then comes Jesus. And Jesus prophetically rebuked the tradition of the elders. Uh, Again and again, he called it out for its ritualistic, compassionless, hypocritical, ostentatious showiness over and over again, hasn't he? Throughout the book of Matthew. You've heard it said of them of old, but I say unto you over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, calling them out for their hypocrisy, their outward shows of righteousness, their lack of compassion for the hurting. Jesus called them out that they thought they were getting the law right, but they were actually getting it completely wrong. They weren't going to get the law right in us or the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah was going to come and get it right himself and live it out perfectly to usher in his kingdom. The Pharisees hated that. And as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, it made them want to kill him, didn't it? And kill him they will. But stop him they won't. They absolutely would not stop him. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, but he did not intend to restore the kingdom all at once. The plan was for him to die on the cross to atone for the sins of the whole world, fulfilling that priestly function. That was the final act of obedience where he lays down his life for his friends, fulfilling the totality of the law, loving the Father and loving us. And in that perfect act of obedience, the kingdom is given to him. And through that now, he would send his Holy Spirit into a new people who would replace this pharisaical uh, hypocrisy with true people of God, a true ecclesia, true called out ones. Not the synagogue gathered ones, but the ecclesia, his ecclesia. He would build his ecclesia upon that. He tells Peter that he, and by extension the twelve, are the foundation rock upon which this promised ecclesia would be built and where the synagogue had been, the system where the keys of the kingdom resided used to be in the synagogue, but now it would reside with the church, with the ecclesia, with the people of God, that we would have the ability to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he commands. And that's still our duty today. They would have the keys of the kingdom, and unlike the Pharisees, whatever they bound on earth would be what had been bound in heaven. Whatever they loosed on earth would be what was loosed in heaven. They would rightly define right and wrong for a people. 
And then they would see their influence and their authority increase. And the church was destined to form the social mores, to transform the families, and ultimately the very laws of the nations of all the peoples of the whole earth that they would disciple. Guys, if I don't get you excited, there's something wrong with you. That's what was going to happen. It has taken time. But the progress is evident. The entire world has been transformed by Christendom. And it's just getting started. The church will continue to be built and the gates of hell will be conquered gradualistically. It's not all at once. It's going to take time. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But now, do we see our influence seeming to increase or to wane today? I think we all know what it looks like, doesn't it? In this little snippet of history that we find ourselves in, it doesn't seem that we're progressing. It seems that we're waning. What happened? We're going to explore that this morning. And I want to give you a warning up front. You may be triggered. And I care not. Um, but you may be. Being politically correct is for sissies, and I'm not one. So I'm not going to be one this morning either. So... We're going to look at delineation in our culture. We're going, to, we're going to look at it historically of how it has looked in these United States of America. We're going to consider what went wrong. And we're going to look at who's using the keys and who is forsaking the use of the keys in the ministry of binding and loosing today. So that's where we're headed. We're going to begin by looking historically. And when I say historically, I'm taking us back to the American Revolution. You're going to get a little bit of a history lesson this morning. I don't have time to flesh out every idea here. And oversimplification is unavoidable when you try to do something like this. But I hope you'll either already agree with or be able to easily verify my unavoidable historical broad strokes this morning. But I'm going to make some. This is actually what you're going to find when you start bearing down on what actually happened in the founding of this nation, the establishing of the United States of America. Prior to the American Revolution, the United States were simply British colonies that were growing increasingly dissatisfied with the state of affairs. Y'all probably know that, don't you? King George was not following through on all of the promises that he had made to the colonies, and he was guilty of committing and overlooking atrocities against the colonies. People were divided over what to do. There were loyalists. Of course, those were colonists who supported the crown, the kingdom of England. They were loyal to the crown. And then there were patriots. Colonists who rejected British rule over the colonies during the American Revolution. So there was a split of what was right to do. The essence of the question was, as we was do you obey the king or are you loosed from that obligation? Are we to be loyal to king and the British crown or are we loosed from that obligation and free to declare our independence and establish our own government? So where do you think they looked for direction during those troubled times where everyone was divided and trying to find out what they were bound from or what they were loosed from? Does anyone know? They looked to the ministers. They looked to the ministers. That's what formed culture at that time. 
in these United States. For binding and loosings on these matters, they wanted to see what the ministers said the Word of God taught. And these ministers stood and they boldly preached, mightily, looking back to the Magdeburg Confession. Many of you probably haven't heard of the Magdeburg Confession. You probably, you, you, you know, you never heard of it or you don't know what it is. But without the Magdeburg Confession, there's probably not a such thing as the United States of America. The Magdeburg Confession, officially the confession and instruction and admonition of the pastors and preachers of the Christian church congregations of Magdeburg, was a Lutheran statement of faith dating all the way back to 1550. The confession gives a biblical explanation of why the leaders of the city refused to obey the imperial law and were prepared to resist its implementation with force if necessary. Their rights were being violated, and what does the Bible say is the duties of the lesser magistrate when these sorts of things are happening. And they fleshed this out, combing through the Bible from cover to cover. The Magdeburg Confession does not only allow for, but calls for resistance to political tyranny and argues that subordinate powers or lesser magistrates in a state faced with a situation where the supreme power is working to destroy true religion may go further than non-cooperation with that supreme power and assist the faithful to resist that power, to say no. The message of these ministers really took hold to the point that the British had a name for them that they hoped would cast these ministers as a bunch of religious fanatics who were whipping everyone up into a seditious conspiratorial frenzy in their own words. They called this group of ministers the Black Robe Regiment. Have you heard of them? It had the opposite effect of shaming them these ministers became even more bold, preaching with more conviction. They saw themselves as part of the military leaders. We're the Black Robe Regiment. We might not be enlisted in any army, but we are the casters of the religious vision that the people would hold upon and build upon and what they would fight based upon because they understood what they were bound by and loosed from, what they were bound to do. And it created more and more patriots. And it painted the loyalists as traitors that if resistance to tyranny is obedience to God and you're refusing to resist the tyranny, then you are a traitor. You're not a patriot and you are disobeying King Jesus himself. That's what took hold throughout these United States they say the next step in the building of the church and the advancement of the kingdom, they, they, they saw, they cast the religious vision that the people would hold on to and build on, and they, they saw the next step of the building of the church and the advancement of the kingdom being exactly what they were doing. They had a biblical view of history which is linear. A biblical view of, of history means you have a starting point and you have an ending point and you're advancing towards something. It's not circular. The same things just replaying themselves over and over again. It is linear. There's a goal you're headed toward. A telos that you're headed toward. In their minds, the Catholic Church had forgotten the gospel. And it had, hadn't it? 
And they had removed God's Word from the common man where people couldn't even read the Bible in their own language. And in the Protestant Reformation, the church had been delivered from that. They had the Bible in their own language. They're delivered from the tyrannies of Rome. The priesthood of believers replaced the Roman priesthood. They all said that... We know that, right? We don't have priests that intercede. Jesus is our great high priest and we are priests of our God under Him. They rejected the Pope as the head of the church because Christ was the head of the church. And the elders in the presbytery were simply under-shepherds. But the authority was only from God, not from the position. No more papal infallibility. That was thrown away. But instead, they believed in scriptural infallibility, the inerrancy of the Word of God itself, to which everyone was subject. And the Black Robe Regiment saw what was happening in the coming American Revolution as the same thing happening in the governmental sphere as it happened in the equivalent of papal infallibility. We have no head of the church but Christ. We don't need a pope. And now they say that what's happening is England was a monarchy and they had this idea of the divine right of kings. This kingly lineage is handed down. And and as the king is handed down, they have the divine right and what they say is binding and loosing on everyone because they're the king. They, They believe they were throwing off this idea of the divine right of king. And legitimately establishing a government that had no king but Christ... This was the next step in the advancement of the kingdom of God on the earth. And the legitimacy of this new government was the point of the Declaration of Independence. How does it begin? We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Is that, is that a theistic statement? Yeah. They're all endowed by their Creator with what kind of rights? unalienable rights. We're endowed... Where do they come from? Do they come from our government? No. You say, well, they're taking our rights away. Guys, stop saying that. No, they're not. It's impossible. They're unalienable. They're given to us by their Creator. We stand in them. They can't take them away. That's what unalienable means. And that we have these rights, and if they're being included in these as life, liberty, pursuit of happiness... And if they violate these God-given rights, they have become tyrants. And then the rest of the body is a list of grievances where Britain had violated their God-given rights, therefore forfeited their rightful uh, claim to have reign over them. They had redressed the grievances and not been heard. And this is how the closing of the, of the Declaration of Independence is, we, uh, finishes. We know that first part. We need to know the last part. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that as free and independent states they have the full power to levy war, to conclude peace, to contract alliances, to establish commerce and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do.
and the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Since we're right, we trust God that He'll establish this and He'll be with us. So help us. Guys, that's our heritage. Not what you're told today. Not multiculturalism. This is our history. Was everyone on board with exactly this narrative? Guys, you're going, no, you're never going to have... You can't have 15 people in the same room. All of them agree completely, right? But the general thrust of the culture, what they had grabbed hold of, was this idea. Especially in the culture-creating churches. It's what they were propagating, what they were teaching. It's what the Black Robe Regiment was standing on. You know how I know, because I've read their sermons. And it transforms the people, and it created a culture, and it created a nation. The churches bound the consciences of the people that resistance to tyranny was obedience to God in response to the powerful teaching of this black robe regiment. The battle cry of this revolutionary war became, we have no king but Christ. They would be a self-governing people with limited government, the first ever of its kind, and they saw themselves as a city on a hill to the nations of the world, that everyone would see that this could be done and that it would do away with monarchs and that everyone would recognize Christ as sovereign and have laws under him and that the law would be king, lex rex, instead of individual kings and that the people would be free under Christ, and that they would export this form of government to all the nations of the world. Those who remained loyalists were banded by, like I've said, as traitors by the patriots, and they were convinced that they would win the war against the most powerful nation in the world because God was on their side. This is George Washington. The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel or an unbeliever who lack, that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligation to give thanks to holy God for granting us our victories. There's no way they could have won, he's saying, unless God did it. John Adams said this, It appears to me that the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation because of their tyrannies. The Treaty of Paris was signed by the United States and British representatives on September the 3rd of 1783, ending the war, the, uh, the war of the American Revolution. It was agreed upon in the name of the most holy and indivisible trinity. Well, that sounds Christian, doesn't it? It doesn't sound anything but, does it? The Constitution itself explicitly identifies us as a Christian nation in its very introduction, the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787. The Christians in America saw the establishment of the United States of America as the political outworking of Reformed Protestantism. Many of them said that the founder of the United States was an, for all intents and purposes really John Calvin. That's how they saw it. The political outworking of reformed Protestantism in a governmental form. What had happened in the Catholic Church through the Protestant Reformation had happened to the United States of America through the American Revolution. That was how they saw it. We have no pope. The head of the church is Christ. We have no king. The head of the state is Christ. People try to minimize and even deny this fact. 
But almost every state in the Union had a state church and laws were explicitly Christian. Let me give you some examples. Every state basically had blasphemy laws. In 2009, the New York Times reported that Massachusetts, Michigan, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Wyoming, and Pennsylvania... How many of you know those are not just bastions of conservatism? They had laws that made reference to blasphemy. Pennsylvania's blasphemy laws was was not found unconstitutional until 2010. We had to wait like 200 years to finally figure out that that's not what the founders meant. Too bad they weren't around to ask them. Right? Maybe we've moved from their intention and we're inventing a new country. You think? That we're not standing in the heritage that's been handed down to us. This is an example from Massachusetts. Whoever willfully blasphemes the holy name of God by denying, cursing, or contumiously reproaching God, His creation, government, or final judging of the world, or by cursing or contemptuously, there you go, reproaching Jesus Christ or the Holy Ghost, or by cursing or contemptuously reproaching or exposing to contempt and ridicule the holy word of God contained in the Holy Scripture shall be punished by imprisonment in jail for not more than one year and a fine of not more than $300. Well, that doesn't sound very American. Yes, it does. It doesn't sound like our new version of America that we've been indoctrinated into. What what they say the First Amendment means isn't what the First Amendment meant at all. We've been sold a bill of goods. The church is sitting there with their mouth zipped, unwilling to even say anything about it. Not only did you have blasphemy laws, you had blue laws. Who knows what the blue laws were? They were Sabbath keeping. They were Sabbath laws. A a stiff Sabbath regulations and uh, that... They actually became called the Blue Laws because it was written on blue paper that got circulated in 1781. The Blue Laws usually forbade regular work on Sunday plus any buying or selling or traveling or public entertainment or sports. That was the law? Yeah. Why? Because the culture was created by the church. They taught what right and wrong was. It became understood that this is what is right and wrong. What allows you entrance to be accepted into society and what you're bound and loose toward the mores, social customs that you should live according to. And then what followed after the mores and the families changed? The laws changed. The government you have is the government you deserve because of the culture that's been created. Does that make sense? And not only blasphemy laws and blue laws, but morality. Gay marriage wasn't even a blip, guys. Cohabitation was illegal. Almost everywhere. North Dakota's anti-cohabitation laws, they, 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 they would put you in jail if you were caught cohabitating and you weren't married. You didn't have daddy's consent to marry that daughter and you slept with her. That was lewd and licentious and you went to jail. Florida... Although cohabitation laws are not often enforced elsewhere in our country, up to 2016. How how recently? 2016. Matt, what you're saying is ancient history. 2016. Cohabitants were regularly being charged with misdemeanors in Florida under the state's 1868 law governing lewd and lascivious behavior. 
On March 22, 2016, the Florida legislature voted to repeal the state's ban on cohabitation after passing the Senate unanimously. Uh, it, it passed and Governor Rick Scott signed in the bill to no longer criminalize or make it illegal for you to cohabitate outside of marriage. The church didn't preach against it. People didn't think it was wrong anymore. And then before long, what do the laws do? The culture creates the laws. As of 2022, only two states, Michigan and Mississippi and North Dakota, still have laws on their books against cohabitation which have not been removed or ruled unconstitutional. And also, sodomy. Yeah, not, not gay marriage. They called it sodomy. That was the laws. 1779, Thomas Jefferson wrote a law in Virginia which contained a maximum punishment of castration for men who engaged in sodomy. But that was intended by him as a liberalization of the sodomy laws of Virginia at the time because at the time it could be a maximum penalty of death. Guys, that's... You, you see, we're, we're, we're not taught what our actual heritage is. What the United States was actually based upon. Virginia had a penalty of one to ten years for free persons committing sodomy but imposed the death penalty for slaves. That wasn't right, but that's how they did it. In 1948, Congress enacted the first sodomy law in Washington, D.C. Where? In that den of thieves. In 1948. Guys, that's the lifetime of our parents, isn't it? Which established a penalty of up to 10 years in prison and a fine of $1,000 for sodomy. Also included with the sodomy law was a psychopathic offender law and a law to provide for the treatment of sexual psychopaths in the District of Columbia and for other purposes. The law went into effect June 9, 1949. Guys, this isn't ancient history. What went wrong? You say, what went wrong? We've made progress. Guys, you're, you're part of the problem if you believe that. Their moral decay, it began, it began somewhere. We're way down river from where it's, where, where it's flowed to. It, we, have, we have to punish evil and we have to define evil consistently as what God's Word says and not just pick an arbitrary spot and say, no, 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 this is wrong. No, no transgenders. No, 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 no transgenders. No, we've got to go way back upstream and say we're going to obey Jesus and we're going to observe all things whatsoever He commanded us. What went wrong? Well, in short, the church stopped using the keys. It's really that simple. The church became antinomian. And any attempt to teach morality, more or less enforce a morality through church discipline, was tabled as mean at best and a sub-gospel legalism at worst. So the people in the community around us who had became less Christian through decay, through moral decay all around us, but it started in the churches and it, got, it gets worse and worse, before long, if you do church discipline, then the community around you would kind of ostracize you and use the keys against you and not fellowship with you and not let you into their businesses and not hire you and not promote you and not, engage, not involve you in their commerce. They would do church discipline on you for doing church discipline on someone. That's what starts happening. Let's get this straight. The exercising the keys and binding and loosing are not legalism. 
Adding works to simple faith in Christ is legalism, but binding the conscience arbitrarily without Scripture, that's also legalism, but teaching people to observe all things whatsoever Christ commands, that's not legalism. That's what Christians should want to do. We know we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren, right? And because that he that says he knows him and does not observe his commandments is a liar. And the truth isn't any. We have to love the commandments of God, don't we? That's evidence. It doesn't make us saved. But when we're Christians, we want to obey what God says. When we see it in Scripture, we want to do it. It's not wrong to say, hey, let's think through what Scripture says. And if Scripture actually says it, let's bind our consciences according to it and walk in it because that's the way of blessing. That's not legalism. Amen? What happened? Well, the skepticism of Kant part of it. I don't know if you know who Immanuel Kant is, but he had this idea of the phenomenological, you could know what you could test and touch and feel, but the noumenal was the spiritual realm, and you couldn't really know that. You could, you could just kind of and you needed to produce your own meaning and your own spiritual truth, but since it was untestable and unknowable you shouldn't insist on your truth on anybody else. So have your own if it gives your life meaning and purpose, but you can't really teach anybody else that that's what it should be. That's actually arrogant comes out of that. The theory of evolution, which mocks the Bible, denies creation. I'm going to tell you something. If Adam and Eve weren't created from the dust of the ground and God breathed into them and made them a living soul, then the whole Bible is not true. And you end up with people not believing the whole Bible because they've got a different starting point, don't they? If you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust anything the Bible says and all of it needs to be thrown out. And that's what's happened. A lot of it. So we've lost the authority since we couldn't defend and didn't defend the Scriptures well. You get people that won't listen anymore. The revival of statism also. Guys, we, we moved away from we have no king but Christ back to the state, is, the, the state is the king. The government is our king. We've moved back to that. I'm going to read you an extract from the Supreme Court syllabus from 1795. A case addressing the differences between the ancient doctrine of allegiance and the republican concept of civil government developed in America. Listen to this. It is to be remembered and that whether in its real origin or its artificial state, allegiance as well as fealty rests upon lands and is due to persons. Not so with respect to citizenship which has arisen from the dissolution of the feudal system and is a substitute for allegiance corresponding with a new order of things. Allegiance and citizenship differ indeed in almost every characteristic. Citizenship is the effect of compact. Allegiance is the offspring of power and necessity. Citizenship is a political tie. Allegiance is a territorial tender, tenure. You're under, you own my land so you owe me this because you're on my land. That's allegiance. Citizenship is the charter of equality. Allegiance is a badge of inferiority. We're above you and you have to do what we say or we'll make you. That's allegiance. Either have your allegiance or we'll make you have allegiance. Citizenship is constitutional, but allegiance is personal. Citizenship is, a, is freedom. Allegiance is servitude. Citizenship is communicable. Allegiance is repulsive. Citizenship may be relinquished, but allegiance is perpetual. 
You can relinquish citizenship. You're an, you're an equal. We're in a compact together. You're not obeying what you said you would do, so I'm out of this compact. You've broken the social contract. I'm out. I've revoked my citizenship. But allegiance, it's perpetual. You can never get out of it, no matter what they do to you. With such essential differences, the doctrine of allegiance is inapplicable to a system of citizenship which it can neither serve to control nor to elucidate. And yet, even among the nations in which the law of allegiance is most firmly established, the law most pertinaciously enforced, there are striking deviations that demonstrate the invincible power of truth and the homage which under every modification of government must be paid to the inherent rights of man. The doctrine is that allegiance cannot be due to two sovereigns and taking an oath of allegiance to a new sovereign is the strongest evidence of withdrawing allegiance from a previous sovereign. You can only have allegiance to one. If we have no king but Christ, where can our allegiance be? If you, if you put your allegiance anywhere else, you've withdrawn it from Christ and you've put it somewhere else. That's the Supreme Court, 1795. Well, what about the Pledge of Allegiance? 1892. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, which it wasn't, with several colonies, under God, indivisible, which it wasn't. That means you can't, you can't, there's no secession, you can't secede with liberty and justice for all. It's not indivisible. If they become tyrants, we are to resist them. As a matter of fact, if we don't resist tyrants, then we're disobeying our other sovereign. So, one nation under God are free independent states. Top-down authority, no obligation, responsibility, or even right to resist tyranny. Romans 13 is given a non-reformed meaning today where you just have to do it because the government says so. You have to obey the powers that are. And indivisible, is, the denial of the right to secede is catechized into the minds of our children and you've got conservatives fighting to make sure that their kids can say the Pledge of Allegiance blows my mind. That's not... That, the very thing that started our country was not having allegiance to the crown because they had became tyrants. You see this? This matters. Christians pledge allegiance to Christ. And they obey the government in as much as they are under the law of Christ. And they resist them when they overstep their God-given boundaries. Does this matter? It does. Statism gets its foothold back. And the defeat... Also another factor, I believe, is the defeatism and surrender of, and Gnosticism of dispensationalism. Well, you know, everything's going to get worse and worse. Nothing you can do. We just have to be out of the world. It's all going to go to hell anyway. We just need to hunker down and do our quiet time and wait on Jesus to save us one day. Except for it's bad eschatology. It's not even what the Bible teaches and it leads us to just hunker down and not do anything and let the world go to hell around us, which is the most loving, loveless thing you can do for your neighbor and for your children and for your children's children. So we stop trying to push. We stop trying to do anything. We're just complacent. And the best we do about anything is complain a little bit to each other about how bad it's getting. Man, it's getting bad out there. And then lastly, the religion of cultural Marxism. That's the big one. And that's actually where we are right now. That's what's happened 
might not even know the term. But you want to know who's using the keys today? It's the cultural Marxists. They are using the keys to their kingdom. Francis Schaeffer said this, In the absence of a biblical morality, a new elite will always come forward to dictate arbitrary absolutes to society. Let me read that for you again. In the absence of biblical morality, a new elite will always come forward to dictate arbitrary absolutes to society. They'll start out by saying there are no absolutes. And then, once you say, okay, I have to tolerate everything, they'll stop tolerating you with their new brand of absolutes. And it's where we are now as a culture. Get this in your head. Everything is religious. There is no neutrality. Well, we just can't have any religion in education. There is no way to educate apart from religion. It's impossible. It's not a question of if you will legislate morality. It's a question of whose morality will you legislate. Because legislation is this is binding or loosing on you. It's the state binding and loosing and telling you what you'll be punished or rewarded for. It starts with the church doing its job and will go to the state. But if the church doesn't do its job, something else will step into the void and the state will will enforce whatever the new morality is of whoever the new keepers of the keys and binders and loosers are. Does this make sense? Can you see this? And it's exactly what's happened. Why do I call cultural Marxism a religion? Well, it attempts to answer four major worldview questions. Where did we come from? What's wrong? What's the answer? And where are we going? That's the four major worldview questions, isn't it? Where did we come from? Well, according to the cultural Marxists today that are in the United States, we came from the 1619 Project that were built on the white supremacy that we started out advocating and doing this whole white supremacy and our whole, our whole society is built on this whiteness and this white supremacy that's just awful and it's just made all the inequities and all the problems and everything that we see today, we came from that. That's the problem. It's systemic racism and bigotry. The hegemony. Those who have had power, they keep the power and they hand it down to the next power, who, the next generation who has power. And it's just self-perpetrating. And it goes on and on and on. And that's, that's where we came from. And that's the problem. But what's the solution? Well, the solution is diversity, equity, and inclusion. We need different voices. We need to get other people in. We need to elevate marginalized voices. We need to disrupt and destabilize the status quo. What's been what we see in society all around us, it's all wicked. It's structural racism. That, you might not even buy biased of it, but it's actually just built on this racism that privileges certain people. And we've the only way to, to correct past discrimination is through present discrimination. We have to discriminate against the people that are in power today to pull them down so that we can have equity in every Everybody can be equal, so we need voices of all the marginalized. Why is the cabinet full of trannies and homosexuals? Why is he bragging about it all being women that need to be at home raising kids? Yeah, I said that too. Why? Because that's what they're doing. That's how the intersectionality grid works. If you're black, well, you're, you're, you're marginalized. 
But if you're black and you're gay, you're more marginalized. But if you're black and you're transgendered and you're gay, you're more marginalized. And if you're, if you're poor, you're more marginalized. And they've got all these victim classhoods of people that have been told that they were wrong. And you know what? You know why a lot of them were told they were wrong? They've been pushed down to society. They've been kept out by the keys. And they've been bound and loose that they couldn't do these things. You know why? Because they were wicked things. The assault is on Christianity itself, guys. That's what it, they're against Christianity, but they they packaged it in a they're against racism and they're against bigotry. They're against it's all the homophobes. They're, that's what they're against, and all the the, the the transphobes. And they're using the keys and keeping all of the transphobes out, guys. I ain't scared of them. I'm repulsed by them. There's a difference. Say that. See if you get promoted. Say it and see if you get hired. They'll scour your Facebook to see if you've ever said it. And if they find it, they'll get rid of you. They'll use the keys to their kingdom to let you in or to let you out and then to tell you how you have to behave to stay and how you have to behave if you want to advance. And if you don't toe the line, you're out of their kingdom. Every society, every culture, you cannot help it. They will use the keys... And they will bind and loose according to some standard. What well, is the standard of morality? Is it Christianity? Or is it something else? The answer is ESG. Energy. You've got to toe the line. You can't say anything against global warming or you're a buffoon. You're probably like drools at night on your pillow. You know, you're one of those uh, just awful people. You know, you're uneducated. You're backwoods country boy. You're Matt Cook. You know, one of those guys. Or social. If you're against any of this stuff, your ESG score, they score you on it. And then it's entryism, in, or you're kept out based on it. You see it? And governmental, do you obey? Did you comply with the vaccine mandates? You didn't? Uh Uh-oh. You're punished. Did you wear the masks? Did you shut down? Did you social distance? Did you? You didn't? Okay. Keys. Binding loosing. You're pushed to the edges of society. Why? According to their standard of morality. And they test you on it. And they make up convoluted, ridiculous things just to make sure that you're actually submitting to them because the state is God. That's what it comes back down to. The reestablishing of statism. They don't want there's no king but Christ. They want there's no king but the king. And where are we going according to theirs? A socialist utopia. Just wait. Trust them. And they... Everybody's a threat to their democracy. Well, what if the majority doesn't want what they're saying? It's still a threat to their democracy. But I thought democracy was popular rule. Whoever has the most votes rules. Well, you don't realize this is one of the communist strategies. If you're a deplorable, your vote doesn't count because you need to be silenced and pushed to the fringes. You need to be cast aside. We don't care about your votes. We need to disenfranchise you and make sure every vote counts and get in people who aren't even citizens of the United States and as many dead people as you can get too. Because it really doesn't matter because the ends justifies the means because we're doing this to bring in the socialist utopia and you can't get in the way. Y'all see this in culture? It's what's happened. It's where we are. The fascistic government has the keys and the power to bind and loose because the church refused to use them. We wouldn't tell people, hey guys, 
You, all, you can't just divorce your wife for no reason and go marry somebody else. You'll be, you'll be put out of the church. We wouldn't say that. Well, their family might get mad and they won't get checks anymore. The whole family might leave. I mean, I know they don't come anyway, but their mom and dad do and they might get mad. No binding and loosing over anything. No thinking about whether that it's a good idea or a bad idea to put your kids in government schools and let them be educated by other people while you go and have two income households so you can live the American dream. No thinking about whether that's wise or not. To turn over the training of your children to people you don't even know who believe things that you don't believe, but hey, it's just education. And that's neutral. They're getting a good secular education, but I'll treat them the Christian things an hour every Sunday morning. No thinking about whether that's okay or good or not. Told you I was going to meddle today, didn't I? The new binders and losers of the public schools, the universities, the news media, the social media, the politicians, the entertainers, and the sports people. New ethics of diversity, equity, diversity, and inclusion. They insist that you reject your own culture. That the attitudes and behavior characteristics of this particular group, you have to reject it. And if you don't, if you say, no, what I've been taught is right, it's my heritage and it's right, it's rooted in the Bible, it's absolute truth, then you are a bigot who thinks your way is right. The target is Christianity, but they've renamed it whiteness. Let me read to you how they define whiteness. Say, Matt, you sound like a racist. I know everybody sounds like a racist. If you're not called a racist today, you're doing something wrong. Anybody recognize this? It was at the Smithsonian, the National Museum of African Culture and Arts. Aspects and assumptions of white culture in the United States. White dominant, dominant culture or whiteness refers to the ways white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States. That's a problem. You're the hegemony. And since white people still hold most of the institutional power in, the, in America, we have all internalized some aspects of white culture, including people of color. So people of color have institutionalized white aspects, so even though they got brown skin, some of them, all of them have some whiteness that they need to get rid of them. Some of them might have brown skin but still be white voices. They actually say that because this isn't about ethnicity at all. None. What are these aspects of whiteness? Well, the individual is the primary unit. That everybody's endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights? Yeah. The individual. Self-reliance. That we shouldn't rely on others to keep us up. That we should live a quiet life and take care of our own needs so we not be in any need. That's what the Bible says, right? That, that idea that, hey, I'm going to provide for me and my own and I don't want to get a handout from anybody else. That's whiteness, guys. And if you think that that's good, well, that's part of the wickedness. That's the hegemony. And that needs to be done away with. That's whiteness. Um... Individuals are assumed to be in control of their own environment. You get what you deserve. Or, you know, you reap what you sow. <laughs> you reap what you sow. That sounds like, I don't know, like a Bible verse or something, doesn't it? The nuclear family. Here's some more whiteness. The nuclear family has a father and a mother. Huh. And the husband is the breadwinner and head of the household. That's whiteness. Or it's Ephesians. And a Colossians. That some Jew wrote that. 
2,000 years ago. And most of the societies of the earth have believed that until right now. The wife is the homemaker and to be in submission to her husband. Children should be independent and be taught to be productive and independent on their own. The emphasis on the scientific method is whiteness. Objective, rational, linear thinking. Cause and effect relationships. That's whiteness. This happened because you did that. Well, how do you explain all these inequities between these two socioeconomic groups? How do you explain it? Well, all the fatherless. Oh, no, that's cause and effect. That's whiteness. You only blame it on fatherless because it's cause and effect. That's your whiteness coming out. Or logic. But wait. Logic is part of it. That's whiteness too. History is based on Northern European immigrants' experience in the United States, which I just gave to you. And a heavy focus on the British Empire, which I just gave to you. That's all whiteness. What I taught you, it's not history, even though it's what happened. It's whiteness. And the primacy of the Western and Judeo-Christian tradition. Oh, there it is. The Protestant work ethic. It actually says, what kind of work ethic? Protestant. Hard work is the key to success. That's so stupid. I mean, everybody knows if you want to succeed, you don't work hard, right? Duh. No, it's whiteness if you think you work hard and you succeed. Work before you play. If you don't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough. Religion. Christianity is the norm. Anything other than Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign and there's no tolerance for deviation from a single God concept. You know why? Because it's not true. And we don't tolerate it because people's souls depend upon it. And that the Bible is the key to actually having a healthy society where the people are blessed and not under the curse of God. Of course we insist on it. That's how blessings come. Through all these things that they say as part of whiteness is how all people, all nations, regardless of your ethnicity, will be blessed by submitting to King Jesus, trusting in His sacrifice where we fail, and obeying Him increasingly to image Him so we get His blessings instead of His curses. But what I just said, you know what it is to them? Whiteness. Planning for the future. Delayed gratification is whiteness. If you make your money and you try to save it so you can buy something later instead of just borrowing, that's whiteness. Go in debt. You need to just do what feels good in the moment. That's, what, that's not whiteness, they say. This should be offensive to everybody that's not white. It's racist against everybody else. These are just good things, aren't they? We follow rigid time schedules. Time's viewed as a commodity. Yeah. It is the most valuable one you can have, isn't it? Progress is always best. Well, of course progress is best. What do you want, to regress? Or a belief that tomorrow will be better, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. That is whiteness. Aesthetics are based on European culture. You know why? Because it was beautiful. But anyway... Holidays based on Christian religions, based on white history and male leaders. Justice is based on English common law. Do you know what another word for English common law is? The King James Version Bible tells us what justice looks like. That's what all of... Why do I say King James? Because that's what all of English common law was based off of. What the Bible said was right and wrong. But if you believe that, which is what holds sway in Europe for thousands, thousand years, 
It's whiteness. Well, of course, you're Europe. All those white people. Protecting property and entitlements. If somebody destroys your property and you're upset about it, that's whiteness. Property rights is whiteness. Capitalism, they're saying, is whiteness. And intent the belief that intent counts. You say, what does that mean? That means that if you've got a policy like you have to have a 580 credit score to buy a house, but that keeps more black people out than it keeps white people, even if you didn't have a disparaging intent, it had a disparaging effect, and that's part of whiteness, so it's still wrong. It's still racist to have a credit score limit, even if you apply it to everybody, if it affects one group more than the other, even if you didn't intend it. So basically people having meritocracy and having to eat the fruit of their own ways is what? Whiteness. If you believe these things, you'll be pushed to the outside. You'll be pushed to the side. So they've got it now where through this emphasis on diversity, you have to elevate these these voices that disagree with all this stuff to give them a spot at the table and I don't care if you have a hundred white people and you've got one black person, they're, who are they going to, they're going to say, and you've got two spots to fill. The black one's going to get one of them. Right? And many times these people that they, they place in these situations have been indoctrinated into all of this ESG stuff and this cultural Marxism. So they get them on all the boards and then they impose their will on the whole organization and make that the, the customs and laws of the whole company. And your hiring practices are all based off of this. Your interview processes are all based off of this. Who's exercising the keys to the kingdom? Who's binding and loosing? Do you see where we're going here? See why this matters so much? Herbert Marcuse, big cultural Marxist of the Frankfurt School of political theorists, talks about repressive tolerance. And you'll notice this. It's the realization of the objective of tolerance requires intolerance toward prevailing policies, attitudes, and opinions. What already has power, we're intolerant toward it. If it's what's been done, we're intolerant toward it. But we're tolerant to policies, attitudes, and opinions that are outlawed or suppressed. So... We're tolerant to homosexuality, sodomy, men taking in, in the locker rooms with women competing in sports. We're tolerant to all that. You have to be tolerant. To, that's repressive tolerance. We tolerate all that. You go and you burn down cities all summer long in the name of Black Lives Matter. That's fine. You go into the Capitol and you do less and that's not fine and you go to prison forever. Why? Repressive tolerance. And it's part of their cultural Marxism. Binding and loosing. And I'm not defending the activity of all the people that went to the the Capitol. I'm saying that it's unequal measures. And that's an abomination to God. That I am saying. The progressives. Think it. Remember this? You didn't build this. Remember Remember when Obama said that? You did not build this. What's he saying? You did it on the back of all these slaves. It's not yours. You've got it through oppression, oppressing all these people. So what you have, you shouldn't have. It's not really justly yours. And equity says it should be taken away and redistributed to other people. I've evolved on this issue away from traditional Christian mores to embrace homosexuality. I've evolved. The progressives 
evolving to something else. Wrong side of history. Do you remember that? You're on the wrong side of history back when we used to believe all that stuff. All that Christian stuff that the country was built upon. Build back better. You're going to tear down what was and build back better. Notice this. Build back better and make America great. How? Again, one, let's hold on to what we've been. One, let's tear it down and build something new. Completely opposite views. And guys, you're saying, am I a Trump fan? No, I can't stand the guy. I think he's an awful man. I don't think he's going nearly far enough. I think he wants to go back to his heyday in 1980 so he can be on another Home Alone sequel or something. And, and, and that, that's what he thinks the idea is when we need to go back to what thus saith the word of God means. He ain't going nearly far enough. But these are the ideas that are hitting each other. And the churches are silent. Who really knows? You know, God's here. you got the right here and the left here. God's right in the middle. And we really just can't speak to these things. No. God's here. The right is way over here. And the left is so far away that you can't even see them from God's Word. They hate God's Word. Completely. And we have to start saying it, understanding it, and standing on righteousness even if they cancel us. Can't go to church, but you could go to the BLM rallies during COVID, couldn't you? Racism's a public health crisis. Questioning climate change was forbidden. Questioning the COVID narratives is forbidden. Questioning election results is forbidden. Unless you're on the left, then you can. Stacey Abrams, she questioned the election results. That's absolutely fine. Why? What's that called? What's the word? Who remembers? Repressive tolerance. Herbert Marcuse. Speak out against abortion, homosexuality, or transgenderism, and you'll be punished by your employer. I loved it when Black Lives Matter, they were rioting, and it was the language of the unheard. But pro-life activists literally wrote, Babies, Lives Matter, in chalk in front of an abortion clinic, and they were arrested for it. They wrote it in chalk on the concrete. One's burning cities down, and that's tolerated. The other is supporting babies. Well, we've always, you know, the conservatives always supported babies, sanctity of human life. You can't, can't tolerate that. It's turning everything on its head. Delineation leads to domination. The United States Congress enacted the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 under Bill Clinton. And it forbade the federal government from recognizing same-sex marriages and relieved states of the requirements that they recognize same-sex marriage unions performed through other jurisdictions. Defense of Marriage Act by a Democrat president in 1996. On June 23, 2013, that was ruled unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court in the United States versus Windsor. All state constitutional and statutory bans on same-sex marriage were declared unconstitutional. The law became effectively unenforceable after the Supreme Court decision of Obergefell versus Hodges and was fully repealed by the Respect, uh, repealed by the Respect for Marriage Act in 2022 that, that makes every state recognize gay mirage. What happened? The church wouldn't use the keys. Churches would baptize people that claim to be homosexual Christians and keep them as members in good standing and say, who are we to judge? That's what happened. And the moral insanity ensued. From 1988 to 2009, support for recognition of same-sex marriage couples went up from 1 to 1.5%. 1 
and accelerated thereafter, rising above 50% in Pew Research Centering polling for the first time in 2011. The transformation of America's response to homosexuality has been and continues to be one of the most rapid and sustained shifts in mass attitude since the start of public polling existed. A May 2018 Gallup poll found that 67% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. A March 2014 public opinion polled by Washington Post ABC News showed support for same-sex marriage as 59% among Americans and 2014 New York Times showed 56 for same-sex marriage. I'll tell you how you want to really test things. People that say they're against transgenderism and they're really going to fight it. These Republican politicians, they're really fighting against all the transgender nonsense. Ask them where they are. How are you fighting against gay marriage? And if they're not and they say that's settled law, you know who they are. They ain't your friend. In order to see the kingdom of heaven expand and flourish on the earth, we, the church, must use the keys of the kingdom of heaven and we must understand this binding and loosing concept and actually do it consistently and biblically. Know what we believe, why we believe it, and insist that we do it as the church. Do we bind outside the church? No. Those outside the church, God judges. But we create culture in the church and we proclaim righteousness unashamedly and you will suffer for it if you're, being, if you're trying to be plugged into their system. It will cost you. Do you love God or mammon? Which one? You don't have to be part of their system. If they've got to get rid of you for being righteous, let them get rid of you and believe like the Americans did during the American Revolution. If they come at me and even attack me, God will be on my side and I will do valiantly. I can't be defeated. Why? Because God's on my side. And I'm an image bearer of the living God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And I can go out and God will prosper me more outside doing my own thing imaging Christ than He will as I'm plugged into their system of compromise. Believe God and suffer for righteousness' sake. As they try to exercise the keys to their kingdom, let them kick you out and say, Good riddance. Praise the Lord, I'm free from that mess. It was a Titanic that was destined to go down anyway. It already hit the, it already hit the iceberg, guys, and we've got a lifeboat. Do right and go and know that God will be with you. And build back better than this pagan system that has been over... With our system that Christians built has been overran by pagans. When they kick you out, let them kick you out and go build your own thing. You can we want to be hireable and promotable according to their terms as they exercise the keys and as they exercise their binding and loosing. Stop trying to be hireable and promotable and go be a king and a lord under Christ. You can do it. The ground actually exists and if you plant seeds in it, it will make food for you. I don't know if you knew that. We can live. But we can't compromise. If we compromise in order to stay plugged into their cursed system, we will be cursed with it. That's where we're at. But if we do what Scripture says 
And do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you think that father is going to let his kids go hungry? Come out. Be bold. Be builders of society. Instead of dependent people that think you've got to be on the tit. We can. What we need, we need to produce instead of plugging into to even plug into their system, we subject ourselves to their keys for entry and to their binding and loosing for advancement and even for continued involvement. And we, subject to, and, and we are subject to their culture, their customs, their community, and their curses. We must once again be the producers of culture instead of the capitulators to culture. We must be the cancelers instead of the canceled. We must exercise the ministry of the keys and the ministry of binding and loosing because that is the keys of the kingdom and they're given to the church for that purpose. And we can't fail. You're like, I'm afraid I'll fail. You can't. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. You can't fail. It takes courage. But good thing that the righteous are as bold as a lion. Guys... You say, well, man, that, 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 that's not, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Yeah, it is. You're still a sinner and you still need Jesus. Okay? None of us have lived up to this. All of us are entangled in ways we can't even understand. All of us have compromised in ways we can't even fathom. But Jesus never did to the point of death, even death on the cross. And God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have no king but Christ. Rejoice in that. You're forgiven. You are forgiven because of Christ's death on the cross for all of your violations, all of your compromises. Praise the Lord. Yes, that's the priestly aspect. But don't stop there. He also gave you the Spirit to go forth and conquer. He also gave you the Spirit. The Spirit and the gifts are they are ours. Through Him who with us sideth. Say, Matt, what you preach today is not the gospel. Yeah, it is. It's not a truncated gospel that only has the priestly ministry of Christ. He is our prophet. He tells us what to do. He is our priest. He atones for us where we fail. And He's our King that promises our victory when we commit to following His ways, even when it's hard, knowing that at worst they can kill us, and then we get to raise from the dead, and none of it was in vain anyway. That's an undefeatable people, isn't it? Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for giving us the keys to the kingdom. Lord, we repent of where we've not used them. Pray that You'll help us to steward them more diligently. Lord, I pray that You would help us to know where we are compromised. Show us our entanglements. Help us to know what we need to stay in and get out of. Lord, well, that, that's a wisdom that I don't have all the time. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that You do. And I pray that... I thank you that if we lack wisdom, we can ask for You and You give to all men liberally and without reproach. Lord, you will give that to us. Lord, make us wise, establish us, help us to have courage, and then let us bind and loose and see the kingdom realized in your will done on earth. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.